can hear me loud and clear. Yep. Can you? Yep. Excellently loud and clear. Now, before we start, I want to make a very controversial statement. As usual. This one might be too controversial. So are you in on me with this one or <laughs> you would like to refrain? Well, let's swim this through this river full of crocodiles. Let's go. Yep, we have stepped onto the tiger's tail, so why fear the jaws? Basically, what happened in Delhi with the Sikhs? Sister, after that, I'm convinced that our preachers, our so-called Sikh institutes are all dead. Let me explain why. Three to four years ago, we had a bout of dirty laundry being washed between preachers outside in the public sphere. Ultimately, we got three divisions. The first, we have the Pujari traditionalists, then we have the missionaries, and now we have the, you know, upgrade types. Pujari traditionalists, you can say, made existent Sikhi into a bit of a ritual, right? That the Kakars are not there for us to judge the wearer, but rather they're sacred, they're divine. If you put them on, you become divine instantly. All this uh, charade of Prema Pagti and bringing all this, you know, Sanatan and Vedic Mat into Sikhi, which is not necessary. The missionary types who came along claiming that they were the true descendants, true intellectual descendants, true intellectual heirs to the legacy of, you know, Professor Gurmukh Singh and Gyadi Dit Singh, the Lahore Singh Sab, essentially. These types, maybe they once had a good effect, right? After the 80s, you don't see them doing anything other than taking pot shots at the Pujaris and the Pujaris taking shots at them. So, for example, please don't be insulted. If I am the Pujari, I will get up on stage and say, Navjeet Singhji does not believe in Dasam Granth, etc., etc., get a few hundred dollars and leave. You, in turn, will say that, you know, Santabab Bamarjeet Singhji does not believe in, you know, the Guru Granth Sahib. He believes in Dasam Granth, Sarblo Granth, etc., etc., take a few pot shots and leave. None of us are concerned with the progress of the daily Sikh on the street. Mm, no, and I would actually call you AKR at Santabha Bhavati Singhji. Brahmagyani. Brahmagyani. And then these upgrade types who have come along, they have come along at the wrong time because really what they're saying is we live in a democracy. We need to learn, in a, learn to live in a democracy. They have this utopian fixation with democracy that, you know, if you learn how to live in a democracy, everything will be all right. Mind you, the most prominent one of them who is always saying Sikhs don't know how to live in a democracy, he still hasn't received justice for what happened to him in a democracy. Right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a bit of uh, irony there, but yeah. Big irony down there. Another irony down here is that then most of these, you know, new type upgrades, they have, you know, trivialized the Sikh identity, right? You have all these people claiming we are Sikhs, we are Sikhs. How do you judge them to be Sikhs? Oh, we can't judge. Well, if you can't judge, how can you help someone? The stupidity here is that in nine, you know, from the nineteen, the early nineteen hundreds, countless Sikhs died to reinforce the Sikh identity. 
to implement a uniform civil code in Sikh Gurdwaras, which recognized Sikh rights, or otherwise people used to use Gurdwaras as brothels, all these non-Sikhs. And, you know, these non-Sikhs used to lay claims to a Gurdwara by saying they're Sikhs. And ultimately, a Sikh identity was reinforced with the 1925 Sikh Gurdwara Management Act bill. And today, the same bill is being dispelled that Vahigru does not care if you have hair or not, etc., etc. Basically, they're doing 50-50 with Guru Gobind Singh Ji that, you know, Maharaj, we will take all the white liberal stuff and impose it on you. But where you talk about her hair and Kesh, Kara, Karpan, Kach, we won't take that. That we will say belongs to the Pujari. You know, it's uh, uh, along the same line. If if you if you want equality, you know, uh, it's uh, well, it's from a video yesterday that uh, you want all the plum jobs, but when it comes to dirty jobs like mining or something, nah, we don't want equality there. Yep. Now, one of these preachers made a very controversial statement a while back, and there was a bit of a you know brouhaha about it that maybe Guru Nanak was murdered. What evidence do you have that Guru Nanak was murdered? I've heard about it, and uh, the, they say that uh, his body wasn't discovered. I mean, see, the way the things are going at the moment is that, you know, one of them made this statement a while back, and I relate this to Dr. Balavan Singh Tillu, and that statement was that he read a source which claims that Baba Banda Singh Bahadur and Guru Gobind Singh Ji met at Anandapur before they met at Nanded. His claim is that this makes logical sense from one perspective, but you know what's interesting? That the rest of the text calls the guru a womanizer and a drug addict. They don't take that, but they take something which reinforces their own view, claim it to be impartial, and then impose it on the Sangat. Now the thing is, what if the guru did not meet Baba Banda Singh Bhadrat Anandpur? If you don't have evidence, then why are you stretching the truth? And that's the same accusation they level at other people. And this is what, you know, this is what's actually happened to all these people. They have become moral cowards. Right? When we have fights in Gurdwaras, people break into Gurdwaras, Mama Pena, Gala Kardeya, all that, you know, all that stuff that happens in the USA, the UK, everyone is pointing fingers. Oh, you swore at me. You know, you abused my mom and sister, etc., etc. Here, someone's mother and someone's sister literally gets gang raped out in the open, and no one has any sympathy with them. In fact, all the big Sikh feminists on social media are quiet. Some of them are even weaponizing the tragedy. Oh, why are you crying about that woman when you treat women, uh, you know, in a harmful way anyway? You, you can speak for all men? Another interesting take is like they say, okay, uh, it's just a, a ploy to disturb the Punjabi political scene at this moment because the elections are, are less than a month away. And like I said, the irony is that those who cry Sikhs don't know how to live in a democracy, they themselves can't get justice in democracies. You just got to... Read Winston Churchill's remarks about democracy and you'll know everything you know about it. The thing is this utopian fixation is nothing which is conducive for the Sikh on the street. Leave all these babas, gatavachiks, upgrades and works alone and just listen to and read Gurbani yourself. You have the Guru Granth Sahib. Follow it yourself. Do not fall into their fights. 
because really they're only taking pot shots at each other. Now, one of these individuals messaged me this morning and they said, well, you know, why are you, why are you criticizing preachers who are spreading the message of Guru Nanak? And I said, okay, so what was the message of Guru Nanak? Criticize the Pujari? Keep on criticizing the Pujari? And he said, yes. And I told him, well, the fingers before Guru Nanak Pandra Pakta did the same thing, right? After they died, yeah. no one cared about them. In fact, if you look at their Bani at many places, Guru Nanak and the other Gurus have commented underneath that you are wrong in that opinion. This is the right opinion. Guru Nanak wasn't just concerned with the Pujari. He was concerned with society itself. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Not just the Pujari, yeah. And this is he, what Cunningham... Yep. So you have the political angle to it. You have the religious angle to it. You also have the social angle to it. Well, the political angle is decided by saying that, you know, this is a democracy. We need to live in a democracy. Forget the sense of democracy. The social angle is decided by saying Sikhs don't need the Kakars anymore. There is no such thing as a Sikh identity. That's why I challenge them. Everyone who says that, you know, the Sikh identity is a cultural aspect. Well, why don't you guys cut off your hair and beard? What's stopping you? Maybe they will in the future, who knows? And then, you know, someone will sit on the stage and say, oh, mental health, the chakkar si, mental hoga si. You know, as an excuse. So, leaving all this siapa alone, because these people are moral cowards, they will not be able to do anything in the future. They haven't done anything in the past. Let's move on to people who did something in their lives. Now, have you heard about the Gadar party? Yeah, the sun, sh the sun shines every day, yeah. Yep. The Gadri Babe. Yep. So tell me, what do you know about them? Uh, they were comrades, they were communists, and they wanted, just wanted to die for Parthamata. <laughs> okay, so you have obviously been reading Pagat Singh Bilga's history of the Gadri Babe, haven't you? Gadri. <laughs> Okay, so let's explore the truth about the Gadri Babi from another angle because the reality is something very, very different. Very, very different. And for all the guys in California who sent us this request, get ready, we're going to complete your wishes. The Gadar Party was more than just a band of communists like it's made out to be today. They flirted with communism, that's right. Now... The issue really becomes is that the Gadri Babe lived at a time when colonialism was supported by democracy. Do you agree with that assessment? Mm, yeah, yeah. So they naturally tried finding alternatives and they flirted with Irish-style republicanism, American-style republicanism, Soviet-style Marxism, and even the Chinese-style. So that's really why you know, they are cast as being, you know, excessive leftists and Marxists. But let's just bust a few myths. So <clears throat> from the start, so the Gadar Party was born on 1st November 1913 when the Gadar newspaper was first published in San Francisco. So like, you know, the Kali Party, like the Kali was the name of your publication and the name of the institute. So similarly, Gadar was the name of the publication as well as the institute. 
So there is some disagreement over the exact date on which the party was established versus the publication of the literary voice. Now, the scholar Seema, so he argues for 1st November. On the other hand, Joanna Ogden proposes 15th July 1913. So for our current discourse, I'm proposing we accept Sohi's date because the publication of the literary voice marked a milestone and step up in the history of the party. Otherwise, there's no problem in you know accepting a date which is only a few months early. Now, Gadar wasn't anything new. Prior to it, multiple subcontinental workers, you know, slash migrant parties had been founded in the Americas and Europe as a unitary front to unionize subcontinental workers and argue for their rights. So something we need to remember here is that, you know, racism or social Darwinism, to be more euphemistic, was at its peak. And in spite of the military service, which many individuals of Indian origin performed for, you know, their European and Western overlords, they were still perceived as an inferior race, immersed deep in charlatanism and superstition. You know what's interesting? I'm reading about Grant at the moment. You know General Grant? Yeah, yeah. Ulysses S. Grant. Yep. And Grant, as a Republican, did more to uplift the Black community than any other president in American history has done so far. I mean, the Democrats were going around assassinating all the people who actually supported Grant. The books by Ron Cheno, it makes pretty grim reading. But, you know, do you know who Grant's right-hand man was? The man who went down in history, a tank was named after him? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the name escapes me at this moment. His full name escapes me. Yeah, Sherman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. his full name escapes me. Yep. Now, interestingly enough, Grant had uh, William Tecum says Sherman, William T. Sherman. Anyway, Grant actually enrolled, you know, Blacks into his uh, armed forces. And these black senior liberated slaves actually fought to the last men. The black regiments did the war proud. I mean, Grant's on record saying that there were many battles which he would have lost had it not been for the blacks just jumping in and turning the tables. And then on the other hand, you have Sherman who actually believed that blacks and Native Americans were going to die out anyway because they were inferior races, even though he led them, you know, he led the blacks into battle sometimes and he fought for their liberation. So this contradiction always forms a part of history that even people who fight for what seems to be a noble cause really have, you know, what we might call ignoble, you know, perspectives. Anyway, we need to remember that even though many of these uh, soldiers and, you know, of Indian origin served under the British, under, uh, you know, Americans and Canadians, Europeans, etc., etc., they were still perceived as being nothing more than cannon fodder. It's one thing to lead men into battle. It's another thing to welcome them into your country. So obviously there was a very big marked difference. So the current discourse on Gadar presents us with the cannibalized and erroneous view that the movement was wholly Marxist and aimed for implementing a Soviet-style utopia, something which you told me just now. So on the face of it, this bears out somewhat if one, you know, casts a cursory glance at Gadar. Obviously, there was a Chinese wing which operated through Shanghai's local Gurdwara, which assassinated the pro-British Sikh police official Buddha Singh. So this assassination was spectacular and underscored conspicuous flaws in British security provisions for native officers. 
this very same China-based wing also had prominent connections with the local and regional Chinese communists as well as their Russian counterparts. So there was a stunning disparity here, which forms a part of the Gadar legend. But Chinese and Russian communists were light years apart in their comprehension of communist slash Marxist slash socialist fundamentals. So this dichotomy and understandings would later become more sharpened during the post-World War II era and would be exploited by Kissinger and Nixon to bring China into the Western orbit. However, as we know, Watergate put a premature gravestone on that story. But for the Gadarites, this dichotomy also disallowed them from fully articulating their positions on the communist, Marxist, socialist trinity. But more critically, it prevented them from building a united front of allies, a coalition to openly challenge and confront the British through a proxy war with them as the storm's troopers supplied with the implements of war. So the thing is that the British were united. Britain was, you know, colonial Britain was one united front, right? I think that's one of the reasons why that whole machine worked so effectively. Yep. And efficiently and effectively. So the issue with the Gadarites, as it would become, you know, as I'm going to make evident, was that, you know, they were far from united themselves, even though they had a noble vision. And next to that, their other problem was that their allies were not united among themselves. So what we're discussing now is not something which is what I'll call a part of everyday Sikh history. The entire Gadar scene is a fertile ground for research, but only if someone impartially takes to it. So laudable and one-of-a-kind efforts in the 20th and 21st century were made by Sardar Jagjit Singh, founding father of Institute of Sikh Studies in Chandigarh, and a secret member of the party who was a keen Sikh revivalist, and wrote a textbook study of the movement, which is still in circulation today. So he was personally approached by Sant Teja Singh Mastwana, Baba Vasakha Singh, Baba Sohan Singh Pakhana, and Baba Gurmuk Singh Lalpua, who were the founding fathers of the party, to defend the party's origins from concentrated attacks by Indian origin communists and renegade Marxists and the Indian agricultural unions who had hijacked the party's aims and ideals for their own power games. So that's a bit of a story behind Sardar Jagjit Singh. The second most critical effort was produced by Sardar Darshan Singh Tatla, who to highlight and defend the Sikh essence of the Gadar movement, focused on collecting and studying the Punjabi literature produced by the party in its annual newspaper copies. The poetry and prose therein showcases a strong sentimental attachment to Sikh values in the form of resisting tyranny, celebrating and living the sacrifices of the Guru and Khalsa martyrs in the face of British and Christian revomping, as well as, now take note, as well as battling to liberate the Punjab first and then the rest of the subcontinent. So please make note of this point because it's very important. So Tatla's analysis of this literature also allows us a groundbreaking insight into the minds of contemporary West Coast Sikhs based in the USA. They had realized that while in the past the Sikhs had confronted and obliterated boys passing through the Punjab in the age of the sword, the British had laid low the whole subcontinent through their machinations. So well, basically what they realized was that the Sikhs could not afford to exhaust themselves against such a universal foe. 
they would have to inspire and arm the rest of the subcontinent if the colonial menace was to be effaced from India forever. So they knew they had to make a coalition. The Sikhs couldn't you know, fight this battle alone. The third and another sterling effort so far is the Sikh Gadar Leher by Jasbir Singh Man, MD and Satnam Singh Johal, which is an expansion upon the Punjab past and present journal, volume 34, which was published in April 2013. But what I believe to be the most comprehensive analysis of the movement is Sardar Ajmer Singh's Gadri Babe Khonsan. So this book, though, is not readily accessible to non-Sikhs, unfortunately, due to its Gurmukhi text. But, you know, while it has heavy academic prose for a Gurmukhi text, when one gets over the jargon, one finds glorious gems within. So these are the, you know, three to four most essential uh, texts which one needs to read on the Gadar Party. Now, what essentially was the Gadar Party? What were its aims, its ideals, and its vision? So the party was the spearhead of a much larger movement, which, you know, as Bhagat Singh later noted, was betrayed by nothing more than organizational deficiency. So something we need to remember down here is that most of these movements are betrayed by nothing other than their own organization structure. Would you agree with that? Uh, I would say it, it makes sense, but uh, I'm going to read much more on that. And, uh, you know, as we will discuss in this podcast, it will become clear. Yep. So, in fact, many Gadarite converts to the Kirti Kisan Sabas would later argue, notable among them being Hajab Singh and Gurmukh Singh, that violence was self-defeatist. So really what happened was that these guys were, you know, essentially, uh, you know, initially they were happy with the Gadri Babi, the way they were using force and violence to uh, combat the British. Then when it became a matter of sacrificing their own lives, they changed tact, you know, so they decided they did not want to die. So suddenly they made a U-turn and became hypocrites. <clears throat> and Harjap and Gurmukh also wrote to Bhagat Singh, telling him that he was in the wrong to use violence. So they actually wanted him to confess his, you know, alleged crimes to the British. So there's that small story down there as well. And Bhagat Singh pretty much didn't even bother replying to them. But immediately preceding these uh, Kirti Kisan Sabas was the original Gadar, and this is the Gadar of Sikh history. So Europe, Australia, Americas, and Canada were the nations which were confronted with a generational shortfall in the local population, while the demand for the produced boomed abroad. So in such a time, these countries came to rely on imported labor from economic refugees. Britain's economic policies by now by this point in time, had fiscally strangled the subcontinent's agricultural classes. And while Shashi Tharoor exacerbates some incidents to emotionally incite his readers based on old wives' tales, by the dawn of the 20th century, low-earning Punjabis were fleeing abroad with the most predominant of these economic refugees being Sikhs. So they were being forced out of their homeland, essentially... So they couldn't, you know, offer stiff resistance to the British as well as, you know, become economic slaves, dependent on others, really. Now, there's a story here that during this time, Baba Sohan Singh Pak now walked past a Gurdwara and he actually heard a Shabbat of Pak Freed from Gurbani that, you know, Pak Freed is saying that, Khuda, don't make me dependent on someone else. If you want to make me dependent on someone else, then kill me. And that spoke volumes with him because it was relevant to his situation where he was confronted with the reality that he would have to go abroad and work for someone abroad. So he would be, you know, dependent on someone else for his daily bread. Now, 
Here's the most intriguing thing. Many of these Sikh economic refugees seeking sustenance abroad were ex-soldiers. So this is a crucial fact to note. Write it down if you want. Ex-soldiers whose loyalty was beyond question or so it seemed. So when these Sikhs were first recruited into the British Armed Forces, the template established by Guru Gobind Singh Ji was followed. Now, of course, if you're upgrade or awoke, you're going to deny this and call it Pujariwad. They were initiated into the Khalsas for loyalty to the Guru Granth and Guru Panth and were then admitted into the British forces. Of course, some ideological concepts were introduced by the British to ensure that these soldiers remained loyal to them, like the construction of elaborate and false prophecies, you know, like the Saw Saki citing that the British were, you know, similar to the Khalsa, etc. Obviously, many of these soldiers knew what the truth was, but at the end of the day, they quenched the flames of truth within until they left the armed forces and travelled abroad, where the strictures of the British army were finally removed from atop them. When they finally felt liberated, they started considering the reality of your situation. So, some things need to be considered here. The first is that the Sikhs composed a majority of Gadri ranks. Sikhs were foremost in its founding, and almost 80 to 90% of martyred Gadrites were Sikhs. So while the current academic discourse holds that the Gadrite Sikhs were influenced by Marxism, socialism, and Western anti-imperialism, which they interacted with when abroad. However, this ignores a very critical and often overlooked reality, which is rooted in the majority Sikh refusal to join the 1857 mutiny. So, you know, if you remember, as Sardar Inderjeet Singh Ji pointed out in her 1857 episode, the Sikhs in a majority did not spot the so-called First Indian War of Independence. The reality is that this war was not a war, but a series of disparate mutinies against British officers on superior and unproven grounds led by Kelbelt troopers, which culminated in the British siege of Delhi. The mutineers envisioned the restoration of, and you know, please take a deep nationalist breath here, Mughal sovereignty. <laughs> and yep, that's the biggest irony down here. So the Sikhs were naturally opposed to this, and while several hundred joined the mutineers, the rest selected to throw their lot in with the British. But, you know, contrary to the nationalist discourse today, the Sikhs did not abjectly surrender to the British, outright after the demise of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. The Dogra betrayal of Lahore was challenged by Baba Bir Singh Ji Norangabad, who was the first Khalsa to challenge Dogra machinations openly. By giving refuge to two princes declared fugitives, Baba Bir Singh happily accepted martyrdom and died fighting against Brahmanical treachery. So the fall of Baba Bir Singh inspired several other prominent anti-colonialist figures, notably Sardar Sham Singh Atari, Baba Hanuman Singh Akali Buddha Dal, his own successor, uh, you know, Bir Singh's successor, Pai Maharaj Singh, various Bedis and Sodi, Sodi fiefdoms, and the legendary Pai Ram Singh Ji. The Marxist, post-structuralist, and nationalist historians who hold that Qadri Sikhs were influenced by non-Sikh history easily and conveniently omit these above names from their histories because otherwise their lies will be exposed as being what they are, bare-faced lies. So Sardar Sham Singh Atari retreated from Lahore disgusted with Dogra corruption. His subalterns and the Nyangs finally slew Hira Singh Dogra and company for their treacherous dealings with the Sikhs and restored order to the empire. After receiving a petition from Maharani Jindakor for aid, he rushed to the Battle of Sabroa and died fighting against the British. Hanuman Singh Akali was Akali Pula Singh selected ayah to the commandership of Buddha Dal. 
Though a political neutral, he rushed into the fray for Sikh sovereignty against the British and was betrayed by the Patiala monarchy, which killed him. Right? Yeah. Why Maharaj Singh was named the heir of Baba Buddha, uh, Baba Bir Singh, who entrusted him with administrating his, you know, altruistic institute's data after his death. So today, every other self-professed Brahmagyani cuts a deal with big corporations to poison lunger with fizzy drinks and high cholesterol-inducing foods. Baba B. Singhji was such a Mahapurk that after retiring as a veteran of the Khalsa Khan Force, he set up a data dedicated to the physical and spiritual health of Sikhs. After his demise, Bhai Maharaj Singh succeeded him and from 1840 to 49 led an armed militant uprising against the British. Just like Baba Banda Singhji, he envisioned a subcontinent-wide coalition of peoples to overthrow the British. He had realized they were global game chamber changers and not regional conquerors. He was betrayed and he dies, died in exile. Ever the proud rebel. Bedis and Sodis were not far behind in lifting their arms against the British. Many of the descendants of the Guru and Guru Granth Sahib loyalists picked up their muskets and swords to crush the foreigners. Most prominent among them were the legendary Baba Bikram Singh Ji Bedi, the son of Baba Sahib Singh Ji Bedi of Una. Baba Bikram Singh received Amrit from Pai Maharaj Singh and along with Sodi Udham Singh of Anandpur Sahib. The two sons of Saudi, Ishar Singh of Hajipur, and multiple Jat and Seni tribes from Ashiarpur declared a Tarim Yud against the British. They were all betrayed or defeated. Baba Bikram Singh's last words were basically a pledge that he would fight the British again if given the chance. By Ram Singh Ji, he had the greater of organizational efficiency, which is reflected in how the British eventually treated him. By Saab took direct inspiration from Baba Dial Singh Ji Narankari, different Narankaris. And several others like him and criticized you know, Ranjit Singh's decadent and imperialist lifestyle. Self-proclaimed Snatan Sikhs opposed him. He became a wanted fugitive accused of inciting the Sikhs to rebellion against the British. He was arrested and imprisoned afar from India and his mission corrupted to produce the modern Nam Taris who call him Guru. Now, these are only some of the names known to us today who incited rebellion against the British and <coughs> occupation of the Punjab. Now, Contrary to the current Sikh academic discourse that only some Sikh texts written by some, you know, Sotrek-minded Sikhs are worthy of study alone, we must also look at what non-Sikhs and particularly the enemy camp has to say about Sikhi. Now, non-Sikh Shah Muhammad wrote the Jangnama of the Khalsa and the British, so this is not to be confused with Nur Muhammad's earlier version of the Khalsa Khanbos. Shah Muhammad explicitly details that a sense of Patriotism and pro-Khalsa sentimentality animated all the Punjabis, even the non-Sikhs who warred and died for the Lahore against, you know, the British. So the second mm -hmm. most crucial document after this Jangnama is the, you know, memoirs of Captain Moten, who was a veteran of the Anglo-Sikh wars. And he notes that the Punjabis believed the Anglo-Sikh conflict to be one of patriotism and truly the first war of independence fought on Punjabi soil and for the Punjab, but Punjabis retaining no loyalty for what transpired beyond their homeland of Punjab like other subcontinental denizens. So there was no one nation state, to put it simply. Now, you, you, must, is, yep. you must remember that Shah Muhammad was tied to the mouth of a cannon and blown apart. Yep. So Melton is substantiated by Robert Needham Cust, then famous Major McGregor, Carmichael Smith, Shah Muhammad, Sitaram Kohli, and A.C. Banerjee, who all see the Anglo-Sikh wars as the first subcontinental wars of, of independence. So 
what is noticeable here is that a persuasion of early Gadari literature, poetry, and all shows that its Sikh membership believed all these events to be interlinked with Guru Nanak's earlier call to resist tyranny. The Gadaris were firm believers in Sikhi stance against opposing tyranny. So Sohi evinces through her researches that most of the early galvanizing which animated the Gadaris transpired in Gurdwaras. Though some ad hoc mosques and temples existed, these were often run by pro-colonial administrations, with the most famous being led by Vivekananda's spiritual brother, Swami Trigunatita, who opposed the Gadari's tooth and claw. So, you know, obviously, Sanatan Mat, opposing revolution, nothing surprising. Now, to put it <laughs> simply, <laughs> the Sikh Gadaris believed they were continuing the religious work of Guru, Go Guru Nanak and Guru Gobind Singh by opposing the British. They were betrayed by their initial choice of leader, Lala Hardial, who ran away to Germany. He lost his, you know, bravery and ran off. But a few resolute Bengalis and Muslims stuck it out with them. Nonetheless, the driving force behind the party, as was rightly identified by Western authorities were Sikhs and their Sikh ideology, British intelligence director D. Petri would note that the Lahore Singh Sabha had seeded the roots of revolution in fertile Sikh minds, and now the Sikh faith was causing havoc worldwide. Now, you really can't say this is a Pujari, you know, conspiracy. Unsurprisingly, the entire Snatan Sikhi base denounced and demined the Gadarites and called for their deaths. They were led in this by none other than Mahatma Gandhi. So, let us now look at some prominent Gadarites. Baba Sohan Singh Ji Pak and I immortalized by his hump would recount to by Sohan Singh Josh that when he was younger and, you know, this is that story of the Kirtan, which he, uh, you know, which you know, convinced him to take Amrit and, you know, start fighting for the rights of the Sikhs. Babaji actually lost his job in the USA and he went to get a new one and the manager lectured him that he was from a weak and inferior race and that if he went back to India and fought the British and his liberation and came back, the manager would make him the manager of the factory. That's what happened with Baba Sohan Singh Ji Pak. And it was the final straw which broke the camel's back for him. Baba Vasaka Singh Ji, the Khalsa mystic who inspired Sardar Jagjit Singh and Sardar Daljit Singh, founding fathers of the Institute of Sikh Studies, Chandigarh. Baba Ji was a true Brahmgyani and not the clowns we have today. Where Baba Vasaka Singh Ji passed, all Pujaris and even upgrade types cleared out. A farmer and then a veteran of the British conflicts in China, he was a Sikh pioneer in California where he owned a potato farm on lease with the equally venerable Baba Jwala Singh Ji. Unlike the well-settled Punjabi citizens today who exploit newcomers from Punjab, these two men paid their labor, laborers a high labor price and fought, fought tooth and claw against racist policies affecting them. Baba Vasaka Singhji was constantly armed to the teeth. He is in record as saying that he believed Marxism to be an inferior form of Sikhi and solely utilized it to form an anti-imperialist coalition. Otherwise, he did not believe in its utopianism. Well, he was a farmer. He couldn't support yeah. the Marxists. I mean, you you really have to be mental to support those guys. Now, Pai Meva Singhji was based in Canada, prominent member of the Canadian Gadarving. He was a Granthi, a Khalsa expert marksman working in a lumber mill. After the Komagata Amaru incident, he shot Hopkinson dead. And when he was hanged, he said that his faith inspired him to do what he did. So, you know, Pai Meva Singhji is a hero today, even though he was seen as a terrorist at the time. Then we have Gyani Pagwan Singhji, who was the literary firebrand of the party. After Hardial betrayed it, Pagwan Singh took over its literary activities. He was a famous Granthi prominent Sikh missionary 
and his immense poetry came to define the Gadri genre of revolutionary prose. His poetry has been recorded in Gadar Leherdi Kavita by editor Kesar Singh Kesar. Gyani Pagwan Singh interlinked, interlinked the Gadri cause with the earlier revolutions in Punjab, so he grounded it in history. What's more, he utilized Tadi Divans, Ragis, and Kathavachiks in spreading the Gadri message throughout the Punjab and beyond. You know, at a certain period, the British used to say that Pagwan Singh's words are more dangerous than bullets because he lends the Sikhs the incentive to pick up guns. <laughs> That's what they actually used to say about him. Hmm. And then we have Kartar Singh Saraba, born in a Sikh family, cut off his hair fearing racial attacks, studying chemistry in the USA. Gani Pagwan Singh and Baba Sohan Singh ignited his fervent zeal. He became the main go-to between Sikh and Bengali anti-imperialists. He was betrayed by a tout when planning to attack the Lahore cantonment and hanged one of the youngest Sikhs to be executed for the Gadri cause. I think he was then, 19 when he was executed. Yeah, he was pretty young. Then we have Pai Rolya Singh, another fervent adherent of Gyani Pagwan Singh. He was incited by Americans and Canadians referring to him as a raghead or a coolie due to his turban, an aspect of a Sikh identity. So he too became a famous Gadri fighter. So these names are only the tip of the iceberg regarding Gadri Sikhs inspired by Sikhi to war for subcontinental independence. A majority were Sikhs based on the west coast of the USA who had realized that at the end of the day, the entire subcontinent had to be involved in the effort to liberate itself from colonialism. Kesar's and Kesar's collection of poetry is important because it underscores the Sikh influence on the Qadris. So, of course, some Sikh aspects had to be reformed. For example, 1857 was explained away as a disunity among the denizens of the subcontinent who lacked a leader like Guru Gobind Singh due to lead them. So this is made evident in that Gadri poetry. Then came another prominent debacle. So if democracy spotted colonialism like it did at the time, then what was the anti-colonial or non-colonial alternative? So this proved to be the decisive issue. So indeed, what was the alternative to colonialism? Now listen to this upgrades if it was upheld by the foundations of democracy. So this is where the Gadri split into several subtle factions. Those who envisioned the restoration of Ranjit Singh era type Khalsa Raj argued for something akin to a United States model. Ergo, the confusion that they were inspired by Washington and the founding fathers when they weren't, they only suggested a political model. Big difference. Other more youthful members orbited towards Soviet-style Marxism, which had taken hold in China and other significant Asian countries. Now, of course, Gadar was very active in China and, you know, the Buddha Singh assassination. So this is a history explored by Professor Kel Yin. So the Khalsa Raj Gadris were somewhat augmented by pro-Irish Gadris. The <clears throat> distinction between the Irish and the Soviet camps was this. So the pro-Irish Gadris believed that the party's foremost mission should be the whole-scale annihilation of British rule and then the establishment of a political commonwealth to unitedly confront any future aggression with provinces functioning as many nation-states. So this was the original Gadri vision. The pro-Soviet Gadris believed that a Soviet-style alternative government should come into existence prior to annihilating the British. The pro-Soviets won out due to, you know, the fact that the pro-Irish Gadris were dying anyway, and the pro-Soviets were surviving. So they were led by, you know, turncoats like Sohan Singh Josh, Ratan Singh Daba, Santok Singh, Gurmukh Singh, and Udham Singh KSL. And these guys would find the, would uh, actually uh, create the Kirti Kisan Party as a way of saving their skins, and they would deride Gadar's violent revolutionary tactics and focus on Marx's utopian dreams of unbridled socialism led by peasant revolutions. So 
if you want to save your life, learn <clears throat> from these men. It's, it's actually so, quite funny because in, in all those, let's say, quote-unquote revolutions fought under, under let's say, the, the guise of the poor people, the poor people die the most. Yep. Now, the social, pro- so, socialism yep. is hammer, hammer and a sickle, the workers, yeah? <laughs> it's the hammer but and who, the brickers head. Yeah, and who died the most? The workers. The farmers starved. They were murdered. The workers died the most. It's funny. Some people it's, it's never like, learn. It's like uh, that uh, shocked Pikachu face. <laughs> so, the pro-Irish wing, meanwhile, faltered, as did the RNA, obviously, in Ireland, in its attempt at delivering its greatest mea culpa, which is a universal uprising of Indian-slash-Irish soldiery on the same lines as the 1857 fiasco but in a more coordinated manner against the British to weaken the Allied war of felt against Germany in World War I. So the Irish Republicans had obviously tried something similar in the late 1800s and failed. Gudder failed similarly as well. So ultimately, and naturally, <clears throat> the Kirtis outlived their Khalsa Raj and pro-violence counterparts due to shifting loyalties, which eventually weakened the Gadri mission. Bhagat Singh Bilgari wrote the whole history of the movement, lending it a Marxist tent. Although Baba Zorn Singh Park kind of flirted with Marxism and socialism for a while, he ultimately realized their futility and later battled against Nehru in the Congress for implementing true federalism and political accountability in India. His was a lone voice of sanity as even the Indian left, Indian socialists and Marxists turned against him. It would be for this reason that he would later cry that his hump had become further exacerbated in the jails of independent India. So quite a tragic story, betrayed by the very people he actually expected to help him. Now, what were Gadda's greatest achievements? It increased Khalsa traditionalism, Sikh conservatism, and seeded enough passion in the hearts and minds of Sikh men and women that they partook <coughs> and they the Amrit and fought against the colonial and native authorities. It offered a comprehensive picture of India's future, though it failed in articulating this precisely. It should be noted that just as the Babar Akali succeeded in rendering contrasts between themselves and the moderate Akalis, the violent Gadri revolutionaries juxtaposed themselves against moderates. So both spectrums at the end of the day wanted the same triumph, the same independence, but the Gadris were realists, realizing that the true struggle would begin after the British left, the moderates, as history makes evident, two wanted independence, but one in which no oversight ruled over them. Whether they aimed to acquire power through psychophancy, their excuses were the same as the upgrades have today. We live in democracies, today democracies proliferating throughout the world, there is freedom of speech, etc., etc. So while the Gadris died to offer them the fruits of freedom, these traitors trod over their sacrifices and look at what India has become today. And one lesson we can take from this is that power corrupts the pacifists more than it corrupts the warriors. Okay, use the word pacifist. Yep. Can you substitute the word pacifist for harmless? I would say victim would be much better. The victim complex. Well, well, a lot of people, you, you know, they say, oh, I'm a pacifist or something. I don't believe in You don't have the, any capacity to carry violence anyhow. Well, you know, it's like this. 
if you respect the law out of fear, that's not respect, that's fear. But if you respect the law, knowing that you can break it and break it well, then that's actually, you know, quite different if you don't break the law. Like if you know that you can break the law and if you don't break it, yeah, all good. You know, you have it inside you. But if you know that you can't break the law because you fear breaking the law, I know it's pretty uh, confusing what I'm saying. Well, then you're a coward, aren't you, essentially? True. So to wrap up, those Khalsa Gadris not killed by the British and British collaborators finally died for long debts in independent India and were written out of history. Their memories perversely corrupted by Marxists, socialists, and now, you know, nationalists. They lived by Guru Nanak's maxim. People curse beggars by begging one does not receive any honor. That's on Ang 878 of Guru Granth Sahib. Even Lala Lajpat Rai is on record saying that Sikh Gadris did not loot any money for the downtrodden like their Hindu and Muslim counterparts. This nobility, however, was awarded with ungratefulness by subsequent generations, especially the Lala himself. The difference between the Gadrites and the Kirtis, which is overlooked today, is that while the Kirtis mitigated religion to a cultural concepts, for the Gadrites it was the sole empowering force behind Sikh and Divas for freedom. This concept, their conception of Sikhi as a religio-political force, is aptly summarized in the Asadivar Ang 142, which is. <clears throat> If many fold pains afflict me and even evil omens befell me, if countless blood-sucking kings imprison me and make me bereft of all comfort, even then I'll not lose my passion for you. So unlike Bhagat Singh, who took issues with the Kiki's aversion to force and wilds in revolution, Many Indian Marxists spotted by Russia increased Kirti ranks and tried betraying Gadar. Again, unlike Bhagat Singh, they were forced to observe the failure of the Red God of Communism in the decade succeeding Gadar. But by this time, they had long since ceased with the shroud of political accountability and federalism in India. The original Gadarites had opposed partition. The Kirtis accepted it. Some of them played a nefarious role in the 1960s Nexalite insurgency in the Punjab in which they targeted prominent Sikh religious figures of the day. In the 80s, many comrades, as the Kirtis were now called, took to attempting to placate both state and militant players with many prominent comrades putting a poster stating Lal Slam to so-and-so militant, but they were caught out and killed. Nehru and the religio-nationalist base worked hard to erase Gadir from history. The vacuum left by the absence of a substantive Sikh academia allowed socialists of various views to corrupt the party's legacy by arguing that socialism and not Sikhi inspired them. This argument was never pressed as hard for non-Sikh Gadirites, indicating an undercurrent of fiery terror bias against the Sikh faith and Sikhs in general. So, you know, essentially, in these last uh, two minutes, to conclude, this is the tragedy of the Gadri Babi, the Gadir movement. I think it would be a, a very long discussion to, let's say, differentiate between the various factions within the party or, let's say, the people who were associated with them. We can't see it as a monolithic whole, but my main point with this was to point out how Sikhi and Sikh history influenced them.
And obviously another famous player in Gutter was played and decent. Okay, uh, another angle here. Yep. The Gutter party was not, let's say, based solely in North America. It was based globally. That's what a lot of people just don't know. You I mean, mentioned you mentioned there... in in Shanghai, yeah. Yep. There was an an office in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Yep. There were activities in Central America. Yep. And even Argentina. It was basically globally based. And one thing before we wrap up is that <clears throat> these locations still have <clears throat> primary sources from those days lying, waiting to be discovered to add new light to the party. I want you and the listeners to go to Facebook at this exact moment. Yeah? Yep. Search the name Sing and limit your, your search to South America. All descendants of Gadri Babi. Not just Gadri Babi, let's say Punjabi Sikh migrants primarily. Yep. And you see how many of them are there. Maybe it's, it's few, uh, possible in the future that somebody could you know, just go there and travel to them and, and ask them about their ancestors, you know? Hmm. So lots of things waiting to be discovered. We only provided an overview. Hopefully someone takes the inspiration and does the Lord's good work. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to travel to that part of the world, yeah, Maybe ask them, who are you? Where you come from? And maybe you, mm. you get an answer. Right. So that's all for today. And one last comment I just received. Gadri Babi were made by the Pujaris. Okay, whatever. Go to hell, buddy. Why Guruji ka khalsa? Why Guruji ki fateh?